4. A World of Rights Exchange control in time of peace should be considered an act of aggression and a violation of human rights in international law. Philip Courtney, 1949 Midway through The Road to Serfdom, the book he published in 1944 that made him famous, F.A. Hayek inserted a commentary on human rights. His target was specifically the expansive Declaration of Rights published by the author and public intellectual H.G. Wells in 1939, a list of 11 articles including the right to education, food, health care, and employment. Hayek did not object so much to the material provisions. His own proposal included elements of a basic social safety net and even counter-cyclical state spending. As libertarians later lamented, the road to serfdom called for the security of a minimum income and a comprehensive system of social insurance. What galled Hayek was Wells's combination of the language of rights with a program of centralized economic decision-making. For Hayek, rights talk could not work alongside state direction of production and labor. If nebulous categories like the common welfare could override one's choice of employment, then individual rights could not exist. Hayek defended the language of individual rights, but only insofar as those rights were negative, the freedom to move one's labor and capital where one saw fit. The rationale was based less on natural law than on utilitarianism. Individual choices guided by competition would solve the riddle of the complexity of the market and ensure the best possible division of labor and allocation of resources. Hayek and Wells moved in the same circles in 1930s Britain, an academic and cultural elite that felt obliged to rethink the foundations of a post-war world. There was a shared sense of duty among Austrian elites like Hayek, Mises, Hans Kelsen, and Hersch Lauterpacht who had trained to serve what was now a vanished empire, and British elites like John Maynard Keynes, Lionel Robbins, Edwin Cannon, and James Mead, who were seeking to reform a still-living one. The connections were close. One of the drafters of Wells's declaration was Hayek's friend and colleague on the Federal Union's Economists Committee, Barbara Wooten, whose own article followed his now-famous 1939 article on interstate federalism in the new Commonwealth Quarterly. Wells published in the same journal himself. In the years before and during the war, Hayek participated in the broad effort of public intellectuals in the West to conceptualize what Wells called in 1940 the New World Order that would follow global conflict. When in 1947, Hayek convened a group of intellectuals in Switzerland to form the Mont Pelerin Society and initiate the post-war neoliberal intellectual movement, he was operating in this same spirit of visionary globalism. Although scholars routinely note Hayek's inclusion of a safety net in his normative national order, they failed to cast their gaze beyond, or above, the nation. As we saw in Chapter 3, Hayek's blueprint for world order at the end of the road to serfdom prescribed international federation as an antidote, not a complement, to the expanding welfare state. His national vision balanced state duties with negative rights, but his global order concentrated exclusively on the latter. The powers of an international authority, he wrote, must above all be able to say no. No to obstacles to the movement of goods, capital, and people, and thus no to protections for infant industries, increased taxation for state spending, and insulation of labor markets. It is telling that the two transgressions of individual rights that Hayek cites 
are both related to transnational relations. The first was the expropriation of businesses in Central Europe, where owners suddenly became foreign minorities in the successor nations of the crumbled Habsburg Empire. The second was the control of the exchange of money from one currency into another and its transport over borders, which he called, with surprising vehemence, the decisive advance on the path to totalitarianism and the suppression of individual liberty. Hayek's language of negative rights and the power to say no can give a false impression of a passive or inactive state in his normative global order. Yet creating and securing such an arrangement required proactive engagement. Hayek himself is explicit that the international power needed an authority capable of enforcing the rules. Although after the war Hayek swerved away from engagement with international order, other neoliberals did not. As we will hear, neoliberals argued against adding social and economic rights to the basic list of negative rights, even as they made the case for economic rights of their own, above all the right to keep foreign investments safe and to move capital freely over borders. Like Hayek, they focused on the expropriation of foreign-owned property and controls on capital movements as being the central violations of rights. They would help design institutions that would safeguard the negative rights of freedom from expropriation and capital control. To describe the particular form of rights promoted by neoliberals, I call them Zenos rights, borrowing a term from Hayek. In his last published work, Hayek spoke of the Zenos, or guest friend in early Greek history, who was assured individual admission and protection within an alien territory. Hayek suggests that this practice meant that trade must have developed very much as a matter of personal relations. Elsewhere, he wrote that rules are required which make it possible at each moment to ascertain the boundary of the protected domain of each and thus to distinguish between the meum, that which is mine, and the tuum, that which is yours. The category of Zenos writes helps us think about individuals having protected rights to safe passage and unmolested ownership of their property and capital, regardless of the territory. It is a right that inheres in the unitary economic space of dominium rather than the fragmented state space of imperium, yet it requires the political institutions of imperium to ensure it. To neoliberals, the problem of the post-war period was the same problem that plagued states after the First World War, the unconstrained expansion of democracy. In 1932, ordo-liberal Walter Eugen denounced the democratization of the world. By this he meant the universal male suffrage in industrialized nations that brought the people and their passions, the interest groups and chaotic powers of the masses, into politics. The post-1945 era spread what Willem Rupke called the rabies democratica globally. As the first colonies gained independence from their imperial masters, the international institutions, and the United Nations in particular, became spaces for political claims-making. As one person one vote became one country one vote, Global South nations found spokespeople among the very social democratic economists that the neoliberals had clashed with in the 1930s. Liberals like Haberler and Alexander Loveday had set the tone at the early League of Nations, but it was social democrats like the Swedish Gunnar Myrdal and the Hungarians Nicholas Kaldor and Tomas Balog who dominated the young UN. A new language of development and the subfield of development economics helped legitimize worldwide demands for full employment, capital controls, and the right to nationalize foreign-owned assets and resources. 
as Rupka put it sarcastically, today's human rights as formulated by the UN include the sacred right of a state to expropriate a power plant. Neoliberals in the early post-war years felt that they had won the war but were losing the peace. When they gathered to take stock and talk strategies in Mont Pelerin in 1947, Hayek suggested that they follow the example of socialists. Leftists, like the Fabians, some of whom he had cooperated with in the Federal Union, and as a professor at the Fabian-founded London School of Economics, had succeeded in shifting debates over time, thus capturing both public opinion and public power, and making their vision reality. Scholars have noted how neoliberals began a long-run war of position on this understanding of the power of ideas in the post-war moment. Even as they dug in for the long struggle, neoliberals also engaged in shorter-term wars of movement. This chapter zeroes in on a specific little-known case of the role of neoliberal intellectuals in helping to defeat the International Trade Organization, ITO, the institution that was intended to complete the Bretton Woods system, as well as their role in writing first drafts for post-war international investment law. The key players were Michael Heilperin, Philip Courtney, and Ludwig Erhardt. Geneva School neoliberals proposed their own vision of a world of rights. Against human rights, they posed the human rights of capital. Against the stateless person, they posed the investor. Against sovereignty and autonomy, they posed the world economy and the international division of labor. Their national was both a person and a company. As the mouthpieces of big business's two largest interest groups, Heilperin and Courtney, articulated a polemical alternative vision of human rights, created lasting precedent for international law, and made concrete Hayek's 1949 demand for a liberal utopia. The Danger of Economic Democracy The Bretton Woods institutions were born incomplete. The International Monetary Fund, IMF, was responsible for the world's money. It helped keep currency values stable by making short-term loans to nations in trouble and allowing states to adjust their exchange rates when necessary. The World Bank was responsible for reconstruction and development. It made low-interest, long-term loans and loan guarantees to help build infrastructure and industrial capacity, first in Western Europe and then in the Global South. What was missing was a body responsible for overseeing trade. The entity planned to fill this role was the ITO, which would complete the Bretton Woods Trio. Like the IMF and the World Bank, it would be housed in the UN and provide a legal framework for international free trade. First proposed by the United States in 1945, the United Nations Economic and Social Council, ECOSOC, resolved in February 1946 to convene an international conference on trade and employment to draft a charter on world trade. The original authors of the Charter were to be a group of 15 of the major Global North nations with the addition of India and China. This allocation of decision-making power may have reflected the relative share of trade in the world economy, but it was less than representative, considering that the world contained 71 independent countries by 1946. Such a limited democratic principle would have reproduced the two-tier nature of governance in the UN, where a small security council had veto power over a large general assembly. It would have also followed the model of the IMF and the World Bank, where votes were proportionate to a nation's share of world trade. Nudged by the UN, the ITO planning group expanded over time, adding first Chile, Lebanon, and Norway, and then others. 
The number of nations involved in negotiations at the three meetings in London in 1946, Geneva in 1947, and Havana in 1948 was even larger. The addition of Global South nations ended up being momentous because Latin American and Asian delegates pushed the agenda away from free trade orthodoxy. Without discrediting the value of international trade, these nations sought to enshrine a parallel right to deviate from the orthodox rules of free trade, to protect nascent industries against foreign competition, and to pursue domestic development and full employment. The expansion of the democratic principle in the planning of the ITO was a moment of revolt against the twinned imaginaries of the League of Nations. And the International Chamber of Commerce (ICC) as expressed at the World Economic Conference of 1927, no longer would the simple principle of negative integration hold sway. Tariff walls did not exist only to be dismantled, but to shelter aspiring infant industries. The chief U.S. negotiator at the ITO recalled a chorus of denunciation from the underdeveloped nations as they opposed uniform principles in the name of the need for special treatment. In the cause of development, the most important way this was expressed was in the governing principle. Unlike the IMF and World Bank, the ITO was to be organized on the principle of one country, one vote. Democracy was to be brought to the stage of global economic governance. The post-war neoliberal movement was born in the midst of the ITO drama, and some of its members played a starring role in it. As delegates met in Geneva in the spring of 1947. To draft the World Trade Charter, a group of intellectuals gathered at the other end of the lake, at the base of Mont Pelerin, taking their name from the location. The Mont Pelerin Society (MPS) became the germ of what its organizer Hayek called the neoliberal movement. Among those gathered were Mises, Ropka, Robbins, and two future Nobel Memorial Prize winners, Milton Friedman and George Stigler. The MPS picked up from the Haberle-type international collaborative projects of the 1930s, including the Lippmann Colloquium, the workshop on Haberle's depression study, and the Anasi workshop on the world economy. In Hayek's words, the intention of the MPS was to allow for personal contact among the proponents of neoliberalism, to erect a coherent edifice of neoliberal thought, and to work out its practical application to the problems of different countries. This involved personal contact, as well as translation and distribution of key texts to stimulate the flow of neoliberal ideas. Like the meetings in Geneva and Paris in the 1930s, the MPS was global in both its mandate and its object of study. Hayek felt that socialists had too long monopolized the language of internationalism. Neoliberals needed to have the courage of their own convictions and exhibit the boldness to do what socialists had done for half a century. Dream of a utopia. They must conceive of the world they wanted to see, even if that seemed impractical or implausible. We have already seen that socialists hardly held a monopoly on globalist thought before 1945. Economic liberals in Geneva, both inside and outside of the League of Nations, had dreamt big in the interwar period as they sought to reimagine and rebuild what they saw as the lost golden age of world capitalism. In many ways, the MPS was a continuation of the League spirit. Many of the figures at Mont Pelerin, including Mises, Rupka, Hayek, Robbins, Maurice Allais, and Rapard, had either worked at Geneva or presented their work at William Rapard's Graduate Institute. Rupka had planned a meeting in Geneva to gather many of the same players for September 1939, the month the war broke out. 
The first gathering at Montpellier was the realization of the international meeting delayed. Given the Genevan pedigree, it is no surprise that the MPS statement of aims was global in its perspective. Penned by Robbins, it began by observing that, over large stretches of the Earth's surface, the essential conditions of human dignity and freedom have already disappeared. In others, they are under constant menace from the development of current tendencies of policy. The reference here was not only to communism, but also to trends towards social democracy, such as the wave of nationalizations being carried out by the recently elected Labour Party in Britain. The statement concluded by calling for a study of the creation of an international order conducive to the safeguarding of peace and liberty and permitting the establishment of harmonious international economic relations. The broad, and somewhat vague, sentiments of the MPS statement were given substance a few weeks later when 500 businessmen from 30 countries convened in Montreux, less than 20 kilometers from Montpellier, at the first gathering of the International Chamber of Commerce since the war. As described in Chapter 1, Hayek, Mises, Habela, and Machlup all shared and partially adopted their global perspective from the ICC, which had been their employer through the 1920s and early 1930s. Mises had represented Austria at more than one ICC meeting in the interwar period. More approximately, the biggest single funder of the first MPS meeting was the Swiss industrialist and diplomat Hans Sulza, who was a member of council of the ICC's executive committee in the 1930s and one of its vice presidents after 1945. A main financial supporter of the MPS and later a member, and blacklisted by the British for alleged trade with the Nazis, Sulza helped try to hire Hayek for a chair at the University of Zurich after the war. He was also a member of the Joint Committee of the ICC and Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, which had sponsored major research by the world's leading economists, including Mises, on international economic reconstruction in the 1930s. If the neoliberal intellectuals spoke from the mountaintop, the ICC was its base. At Montreux, the 38-year-old Polish-American economist Michael Angelo Halperin, an MPS member who would play a major role in monetary debates of the 1960s, presented the official analysis of the ITO Havana Charter to the gathered business people. Halperin was a quintessential member of the Geneva School. Born in Warsaw in 1909, he completed his undergraduate and graduate degrees at the University of Geneva in 1929 and 1931, his dissertation, written in French, was on the monetary problems produced by the collapse of the Habsburg Empire. In 1934, he had generated serious interest from the Rockefeller Foundation to fund the creation of an international monetary institute in Geneva. A student of Rapard's, Halperin took a position at Geneva's Graduate Institute for International Studies in 1935, a year after Mises. For three years, he worked in almost daily contact with Mises and also alongside Rupka, who arrived at the Institute in 1937. Halperin presented on monetary issues at the Lippmann Colloquium in 1938. He was a vocal member of the MPS after the war, as well as an associate editor of Fortune magazine, a participant in Bilderberg meetings and in the Bellagio Group meetings that helped end the Bretton Woods system of fixed but adjustable exchange rates. Halperin first became involved with international business circles in 1943, when he took a leave of absence from his position at Hamilton College to work as an advisor for the pharmaceutical and cosmetics company Bristol Myers 
which had flagship products in laxatives and toothpastes, and secured a major contract to supply penicillin to Allied soldiers during the war. At the 1944 International Business Conference, which brought together the ICC, the National Association of Manufacturers, and others, Halperin was the rapporteur for the section on international monetary relations, enjoying the highest consultative status on the UN Economic and Social Council. The ICC was a participant at every stage of the attempt to create the ITO. As the ICC advisor, Halperin was one of the few Americans attending both the Geneva and Havana conferences in an unofficial capacity. When the president of Bristol Myers, Lee H. Bristol, appeared before the U.S. Congress in 1950 to reject the ITO charter, he brought Halperin along, drew exclusively from his analysis, and deferred to him during the session for details that he was unable to provide. Halperin's statement of opposition to the Havana Charter at Montreux was a near-carbon copy of the position of the ICC and the League of Nations at the World Economic Conference of 1927, an event that, according to Halperin, was the high point of international endeavor and produced the most comprehensive report of its kind, a well-reasoned document, but regrettably included no mechanism for enforcement or commitment. Like the 1927 report, Halperin demanded negative integration. For the overall growth of productivity, trade, investment, and living standards throughout the whole world, a system was needed in which goods, capital, and men can move and services be exchanged with the greatest possible freedom from country to country. Halperin condemned the proposed ITO using the term of critique from the 1930s, economic nationalism. According to Halperin, The number of exceptions, emergency clauses, and opt-outs in the Havana Charter had made it the first international charter of economic nationalism ever written in the long history of the civilized world. For Halperin and the ICC, the ITO Charter was a dangerous document. Above all, in its transposition of democracy into international relations, speaking before the U.S. Congress, Bristol said that the one country, one vote voting procedure is unacceptable. It threatened to create a situation in which the rules of international commerce are being laid down by large numbers of countries who have a minor stake in international trade and often very little experience in conducting commercial policy. Halperin expanded his critique of the ITO to general observations about the world since the end of the First World War. He noted that the period had been marked by a paradox: barriers to international trade and exchange multiplied. Even as awareness of global economic interdependence increased, this had brought a series of quixotic hopes, such as the insulation promoted by Keynes, and seen by many as at the heart of the post-war order. The essence of the goal of policy autonomy was that a nation should be free to break the rules of the game when it chose to. The Havana Conference, intended as a performance of internationalism, became a very illuminating and enlightening seminar in present-day nationalism. To Halperin, the ITO was a banner case of the failure to recognize the need for a double government for imperium and dominium. Speaking to another gathering of industrialists, Halperin said that a good ITO would prohibit any and all forms of blocking capital and goods, as well as more subtle forms of distorting the market through subsidizing production. Halperin put sovereignty in quotation marks, implying that the term had no intrinsic meaning when applied to economic matters. In a paper based on a lecture delivered at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, he did the same with autonomy, similarly discrediting the notion. In Halperin's reading, 
exercising economic sovereignty and economic autonomy were not simply inadvisable, they were impossible. Halperin phrased part of his critique in terms of what I have called capitalism's double world. One stratum of the world was that of the Earth's natural endowments in the space of production, distribution, and ownership. The other stratum was the political world of nations and states. The category mistake of the sovereignty claim was to assert political control over the world of nature and economics. Halperin elaborated on this in 1952. In physical terms, he said, the planet is a single unit which cannot be subdivided into equivalent or self-contained parts. Politically, however, it is divided into a multitude of separate states, all bent on independence, often seeking at least partial economic self-sufficiency. The resources of the Earth, including climates, seas, and the Earth's inner core, do not favor the kind of political divisions which prevail on our planet. There is no way, he wrote, in which the political division of the planet can be reconciled with its physical structure by apportioning in some way or other the surface and the resources of the globe among individual states. The alternative is to reduce the importance of political divisions in terms of economic relationships. Halperin's vision of order was multilateral but also unilateral. It brooked no deviations from the strictures of free trade. It was not only that he brushed away the complaint of infringement on sovereignty, Consistent with the Geneva School position of militant globalism developed since the 1930s, diminishing sovereignty was the exact point. He wrote directly that it was necessary to subordinate national objectives to international order. He echoed the Federalist vision of Mises, Robbins, and Hayek when he argued that the importance of national boundaries must be radically and drastically reduced. They must become mere administrative demarcation lines, and national governments must have only limited powers over their populations. In its strong form, this would require what he called geopolitics in reverse gear, re-engineering national boundaries to actively diminish their capacity for self-sufficiency. Halperin's demands for a muscular ITO that would bind nations to free trade and potentially shrink them to increase dependency on world trade was the first example of a post-war neoliberal utopia being articulated in full. It was also done within the world's most important business advocacy group. The solution was radical, and no doubt would have been rejected by his employers within the capitalist international. He recognized that very few nations, including the United States, would be willing to sign such a document. Given this fact, it is remarkable to note the verifiable effect that his activism, along with that of fellow neoliberals, had in sinking the ITO. The ICC opposition to the ITO was a surprise. The organization had been close to the U.S. State Department during and immediately after the war. It stood behind Secretary of State Cordell Hull's push for free trade, and the American Council of the ICC had been one of the keystones of bipartisan support for his program. When the Havana Charter came up for a resolution, the reflexive inclination of many ICC members was to follow their pattern of support for the U.S. State Department by signing it. Yet, as the official history of the ICC, written by a former member, recounts, Halperin found a crucial ally for his opposition in Philip Courtney, an acquaintance of Mises who joined the MPS in 1953. Courtney led the opposition and managed to convince the ICC Executive Committee to oppose the State Department on a major issue for the first time. The scene repeated itself at the international meeting when Courtney again led the opposition to the ITO against the British Committee, 
who were disposed to sign the agreement. The decisive moment came when the chairman of the committee, Ernest Mercier, a French industrialist who had attended the Walter Lippmann Colloquium and was also a member of the MPS, said he would tender his resignation before accepting the resolution. The resolution died on the floor. By lining up with Courtney and Halperin, Mercier scuttled the support of the ICC for the ITO. One observer dubbed the group around Halperin the perfectionists and suggested the interesting possibility that in this case, the businessmen were the hopeless idealists, while the bureaucrats and college professors who supported the charter without being enamored of it were the realists. Referring to a statement written by Halperin, he said that, It is not always easy to tell when these statements are setting out utopian ideals and when they are describing a state of affairs the business groups think is really attainable. Such critiques failed to see that the utopianism was not incidental, but intentional. Halperin wrote in 1947, We must agree to go beyond barren and complacent rationalizations of the present, in the name of what is often called realism, and seek goals which may appear unattainable, until they have actually been reached. Halperin and Courtney were fulfilling Hayek's desire from 1949 to the letter by offering a liberal utopia which is not too severely practical and which does not confine itself to what appears today as politically possible. It was precisely the overreach of the statements that make them amenable to the neoliberal program, which dictated polemic as a means to make liberalism an intellectual adventure, a deed of courage. What observers saw as a failing, in other words, may have been exactly Halperin and Courtney's goal, to reject diplomacy and pragmatism and take the fight to the advocates of national economic autonomy. The ICC position statements were not just policy documents, but what the Germans call Kampfschriften, or fighting documents. As Halperin put it, the failed world conferences of the interwar period had taught the lesson that, in order to counteract a strong trend, it is necessary to hit at it and to hit hard. In broad terms, the struggle over the ITO pitted the global north against the global south. Yet the official U.S. display of compromise to push the Havana Charter shows that it is important not to assume that the West was a single unitary actor in the post-war moment. Far from being intransigent, official U.S. representatives immediately after the war showed a remarkable willingness to respond to the demands of Global South countries. To blame the U.S. failure to ratify the ITO on the unwillingness of big business to give up its sovereignty neglects the fact that the ICC's official position was not that the United States would lose too much sovereignty by participating in the ITO, but that the ITO would not infringe enough on the sovereignty of signatories. Using the Business International as an amplifier for a radical vision reminiscent of the federalism of Robbins and Hayek from the 1930s, Geneva School neoliberals outflanked the official government position and helped doom an organization committed to a level of decision-making parity with the poorer nations of the world. The Human Right of Capital Flight Heilperin's closest ally in opposition to the ITO had been Philip Courtney, who was active within both the American Council of the ICC and the National Association of Manufacturers, NAM. One historian calls Courtney the major spokesman for the purists against the Havana Charter. Born Philippe Cotnaranyu in Romania in 1895, Courtney emigrated to the United States after taking an engineering degree in France. In 1946, he became an American citizen and president of COTI, 
a French perfume company. Courtney was a member of the executive committee of the U.S. Council of the ICC and would become its chairman in 1957. He was also a member of the International Relations Committee of NAM, a business advocacy group that was close to the European neoliberals. The committee executive was Noel Sargent, who had hired Mises to work as a paid and unpaid consultant for NAM from 1943 to 1948 when Courtney first met Mises. In 1949, Courtney published his criticism of the ITO under the title The Economic Munich, making a polemical analogy between the Charter and Neville Chamberlain's appeasement of Adolf Hitler. Mises was extravagant in his praise, saying that the book would be read and reread as a classic of economic freedom, like the works of Cobden and Bastia. The Economic Munich was most notable for its engagement with the language of human rights. Courtney did not reject human rights as such. He praised the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights as a milestone in man's fight for liberty and human dignity. It was the choice of rights he disagreed with. He condemned the way that the Havana Charter made full employment into a kind of sacred human right, quoting Halperin's Montreux statement at length and support. Rather than discard the language of human rights as corrupted, Courtney added his own. In a strong statement, he proposed that exchange control in time of peace should be considered an act of aggression and a violation of human rights in international law. By exchange control, Courtney meant what is better known as capital controls, the right to change money from one currency to another, specifically with the goal of transferring the money over a national border. The right to use capital controls was included in the framework of the IMF at Bretton Woods, the fact that Heilperin condemned as one of its crucial failings. Though many observers felt that the flow of hot money being invested by speculators back and forth across the Atlantic in the 1920s had helped precipitate the crash, Halperin turned the problem around. It is not the money that is hot, he said, but the place from which it takes flight. If capital controls were removed, countries that had drawn investors would have to establish conditions hospitable enough to induce foreign capital to remain. Courtney's rhetorical move was to reframe the question from an economic matter into a matter of human rights. He linked capital control to the right to leave a country as such. Because the right to leave a country is for all practical purposes meaningless unless one is entitled to take with him belongings, he argued that one must under all circumstances be allowed to exchange and export capital. Courtney described the right to emigrate as the basis of all his other human rights, noting that it is included in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 13, but suggesting that this should have gone further by linking it to its necessary prerequisite, the right of free capital movement. Courtney was effectively proposing the human right of capital flight. In a post-war climate preoccupied with the rights of refugees and asylum seekers to stay once they had escaped danger, Courtney stood out for linking his claim of the human right of capital movement to the right to leave. His demand was neither spurious nor ill-informed. Courtney was a lifetime member of the American Society of International Law, and Philip Jessup one of the fathers of transnational law, cited Courtney himself on the fact that exchange control can effectively destroy the right to emigrate. Courtney's ingenuity was to read what was not intended as an economic right as an aspect of the economic constitution of the world, deeming money an item of property inhabiting the economic sphere that transcends political jurisdiction. 
capital requires the protection of universal rights in his interpretation. Consistent with ordo-globalism, he called for the constitutionalization of free market principles, demanding that exchange control should be outlawed in the national constitutions. What seems like an act of cynicism on Courtney's part is actually consistent with the Geneva School neoliberal approach to the question of human rights in the years after 1945. Rather than reject human rights outright, the neoliberal tendency has been to undermine social democratic interpretations of human rights and international law while simultaneously co-opting them to cover clearly capitalist prerogatives. To say this was or is a critique of social and economic rights would be misleading, because the free movement of capital, goods, and labor was just as much a social and economic right as the demand for social security, employment, or nourishment. Indeed, as we will hear in Chapter 6, the so-called market rights enshrined in the European Economic Community Treaty were central to the neoliberal vision of Europe. Against Roosevelt's four freedoms of speech, of worship, from fear, from want, neoliberals posed the four freedoms of capital, goods, services, and labor. The Capitalist Magna Carta Halperin wore two hats at the Montreux Conference in 1947. The first was as the ICC's man at the table for the ITO negotiations. The second was as the primary author of the ICC's International Code to Protect Foreign Investments. This latter document worked within Courtney's imaginary by tying business demands to the language of rights. At the conference, Halperin announced the need for a Code of Fair Practices in the Field of International Investments. The draft code came out of the Committee on Foreign Investments, for which Halperin was the rapporteur. It built on attempts made by the League of Nations in 1929 at a conference on the treatment of foreigners and on a 1939 proposal from the ICC on the legal treatment of foreign companies. Picking up on pre-war roots, the proposal was the first version of what would become today's regime of international investment law. Working with rather than against the UN, Halperin and the ICC felt that the Code of Investors' Rights was to act as a supplement to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The ICC tasked ECOSOC with turning the code into a universal convention for later adoption. The preamble, likely written by Halperin, took direct aim at a December 1947 report by a UN subcommission submitted by Uruguay that criticized the special danger of direct foreign investments interfering in the political and economic affairs of those countries. By contrast, the ICC code called for nationals, which it defined as not only physical persons but also incorporated or unincorporated associations, to enjoy the civil rights not of the host state but of their own state, even if this might grant them a preferential position. Halperin had already noted in his 1947 book that the protection for foreign investors had to exceed that for citizens. If capital controls apply to citizens, for example, they must not be allowed to apply to aliens. Equality of treatment, he said, does not suffice. In a classic demand for Xenos rights, the alien investor must actually have more rights than citizens. The focus of neoliberals and big business on investor rights in 1947 was motivated by the perceived precariousness of private property both during and after the Second World War. The decline had begun during the First World War, when, as Rupka noted, disregard of the private property of the enemy had become the rule among the belligerents. 
The Soviet Union's expropriation of property after 1917 had been a signal rupture, followed by what a U.S. State Department advisor called a dreary succession of such takings in the period between the wars. It was such acts of expropriating foreign-owned property, or what was called nostrification in post-imperial Central Europe when the property was given to private nationals, that Hayek complained of in The Road to Serfdom. Even though foreign owners were often compensated at above-market price for such nationalizations worldwide, observers regularly cited cases, such as the Mexican nationalization of oil in 1938, as evidence of a global erosion of property rights. Neoliberals saw the disrespect of what were variously called foreign rights and alien rights of capitalists continuing in the post-war period. The specific sparks to their outrage were sometimes surprising. The proximate context for Courtney's call to designate exchange control, a violation of human rights, for example, was the cooperation of the U.S. and Western European governments to repatriate concealed Western European assets as part of the Marshall Plan. Courtney said that in doing this, the United States was assuming the role of a Gestapo in locating European assets in American bank accounts. Rupka railed in a similar vein against the confiscation of German assets in Switzerland after the Second World War, saying that it undermined the principle of the separation of sovereignty and property in the case of war. Considering the horrors of the war, it is startling to find an intellectual perceiving its lasting scandal as being the loss of foreign-owned property by citizens of the aggressor nation. Yet to Rupka and Courtney, these were not isolated grievances, but symptoms of a larger malady. In demanding an economic constitution of the world, Geneva School neoliberals insisted that governing a territory did not mean owning the property within it. The campaign of the ICC and its neoliberal advisors was to create a legal framework to uphold the distinction between the imperium of government and the dominium of property. Neoliberals reached the armory of law to rebuild the distinction between property and territory. The ICC's proposal was taken up by an ECOSOC more sympathetic to social democratic nation-based demands than doctrinaire globalist business rights. In the post-war decades, the UN General Assembly became the midwife to the principle of permanent national sovereignty over natural resources. After a proposal by Uruguay and Bolivia, the UN General Assembly in 1952 passed its first resolution of many declaring that the right of peoples freely to use and exploit their natural wealth and resources is inherent in their sovereignty. Responding to a trend toward nationalization with UN sanction, the German Society for the Protection of Foreign Investment revived Hyperin's ICC code as a basis for its own draft convention. At the Society's inaugural meeting in 1956, MPS member Ludwig Erhardt declared that, especially in the Western world, infractions against private property are eating further and further in, like a sneaking poison. Erhardt's placement of the danger to property in the West was consistent with a neoliberal interpretation, which held that social democracy in the global North was working in tandem with nationalizing tendencies in the global South to imperil the sanctity of property. At an MPS meeting in 1957, Arthur Shenfield said that if it became clear that the capital of the West could be attained only by those who respected the rights of capital, there would be a very salutary influence on the internal conduct of affairs in the prospective borrowing countries. But for that, of course, the West must itself learn again to understand and respect the rights of capital owners. 
1952, Mises observed the irony of the disavowed symmetry between Global South and North when he said, If it is right for the British to nationalize the British coal mines, it cannot be wrong for the Iranians to nationalize the Iranian oil industry. If Mr. Attlee were consistent, he would have congratulated the Iranians on their great socialist achievement. Rupka wrote a year later that, The Mossadegh's appeal to the Attlees and the Bevins, who have inspired them with the idea of nationalization. In fact, the British case against the expropriation of Anglo-Iranian oil was one of the most important signals to the international business community that new standards were necessary for more robust protection of foreign property. The German society's president, the Deutsche Bank head, Hermann Josef Abs, who had overseen the expropriation of Jewish property in the Third Reich, became an international spokesperson for property rights in the second half of the 1950s. After the society drafted an international convention for the mutual protection of private property rights in foreign countries, Ops made his case before the American Society of International Law in 1956 and, most influentially, in a San Francisco speech at the International Industrial Development Conference on October 15, 1957, in which he cited the ICC statement. The speech, titled The Safety of Capital, was reported in Time magazine under the headline A Capitalist Magna Carta, in an issue that featured Ludwig Erhardt on its cover. Ops's proposal opened an international conversation on the rights of the investor. His capitalist Magna Carta would oblige signees to abstain from direct or indirect illegal interference with foreign capital and would create an international court of arbitration to judge violations. Investors could turn to the third-party court first without using local courts. To punctuate the need for his code, Ops brought up the recent cases of the expropriation of the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, the United Fruit Company in Guatemala, the Suez Canal, Dutch land in Indonesia, and foreign-owned power plants in Argentina. For Ops, like the ICC, the UN had become an enemy accomplice of the property thieves, passing resolutions supporting the idea that expropriations are permissible at any time without compensation. That an individual who had been an active participant in processing the expropriation of the property of German Jews would later be actively defending property was incongruous. But Ops did not act from amnesia or repentance. In his San Francisco speech, he made a point of raising Courtney and Rupka's bugbear issue of foreign holders of accounts of German banks who were still waiting for a fair settlement. Ops was the man who signed the document for giving Germany's massive war debt in 1953, and it is known that he did so in the belief that it was not forgiveness per se, but instead a just settling of accounts for the German assets seized abroad. Ops's campaign for investor protection was a continuation of the dogged commitment to the economic constitution, dividing the public world of states from the private world of property. Part of his original proposal, described by an observer as idealistic, would have made alien property immune from confiscation during times of war. The capitalist Magna Carta drew interest in the United States. The chair of the Judiciary Committee of New York, Emanuel Seller, declared the urgency of Ops's Magna Carta as he described a monument on a Mexico City boulevard commemorating the nationalization of oil and spoke balefully of the law of the jungle prevailing in Indonesia where Dutch assets were expropriated by wild men bent upon revenge. It would indeed be a great achievement, he said, if West Germany could blaze a trail to the creation of such a Magna Carta under the leadership of Ops and Erhardt. By the late 1950s, 
the struggle against expropriation was taking on a racialized language of the rule of law against the rule of the jungle, pitting the rational West against a global South with its emotional commitment to sovereignty. Combined with the work of a group of British attorneys under Sir Hartley Shawcross, Ops circulated a draft convention on investments abroad for comment in 1959. The document was concerned entirely with the protection of the property of nationals, which were defined not as individuals but, following the ICC code, as companies, including both juridical persons recognized as such by the law of a party and associations, even if they do not possess legal personality. The legal experts who commented on the convention were not encouraging. The preamble of the convention presented itself as a restatement of principles, one expert noted, but in several respects, it is clearly a good deal more than that. They saw the convention as unprecedented in the protection it gave the foreign investor. In every instance, it tipped toward the investor, dismissing public interest as a reason for expropriation, allowing investors to turn to an international court before national courts, and breaking with current practice by forcing compensation to be made in the investor's own currency and making the primary object of protection the company rather than the individual. By referring to both direct and indirect expropriation, the Ops Shawcross Convention even anticipated the later inclusion of regulatory expropriation in international codes. One contemporary critic noted, It is difficult to determine where indirect deprivation of property ends and, for instance, taxation, planning legislation, or property law reform begins. A former legal advisor to the State Department most sharply pointed out the lopsidedness of the convention. He wondered whether the proposition was not to secure a commitment from a country that it must be prepared to take food from the mouth of its people in order to pay compensation in foreign exchange for property taken in exercise of its eminent domain power. He asked if this would amount to an effort to erect property rights over the human right to eat. Demonstrating how far such a convention was from reality, one lawyer noted that the United States had been able to secure only watered-down commercial investment protection treaties with a handful of global South countries and had no success at all with either recently decolonized nations or South American nations, which were major destinations for foreign capital. One interpretation could be that the Ops Shawcross Convention, like the ICC Code, was not a serious proposal. It was a polemical document, outlining a dream world in which capital not only moved unobstructed globally, but was encased globally by both home states and supranational third-party institutions of arbitration. What is clear is that neither of them were attempts to meet developing nations halfway. Rather, they were gauntlets thrown down to the global south. It is symptomatic, as critics noted, that neither the ICC nor the OBS Shawcross Convention even acknowledged investment protection proposals coming from the Global South, including one in particular from Malaya, that sought to balance the needs of capital importing and exporting countries. The codes were coded threats of their own, seeking to discipline what their authors and champions saw as third-world overreach. The Bilateral Fix Given the utopian nature of the proposed international investment codes, it is a startling recognition of the long-term defeat of the bargaining power of the Global South that those codes have become reality over time. Modern international investment treaties now largely resemble the Ops Shawcross draft. A major difference between Halperin's proposals and what later came into effect, however, was the switch from the multilateral to the bilateral approach. 
1958, U.S. Representative James G. Fulton, Republican Pennsylvania, one of the chief negotiators for the ITO, praised the idea of the capitalist Magna Carta, but conceded that the World Charter had shown the difficulty of the universal demand. He suggested that bilateral treaties might be used instead. From the beginning, the ICC had indicated that a universal code was preferable, but their document would also work as the basis for bilateral relationships. In fact, the Montreux Congress had also produced a model bilateral agreement drawing on interwar templates. Halperin himself announced the failure of the universalist approach to the problems of restoring the world economy to its former health. When a second edition of his 1947 book, The Trade of Nations, came out in 1952, he stated that his opinion had moved in the intervening years to the quality of the bilateral treaty. State-to-state treaties were indeed much more the norm, including the Freedom of Commerce and Navigation treaties that the U.S. used up until the 1980s. The Bilateral Investment Treaty ended up offering the path that investor rights took from utopia to reality. Here, too, there was an MPS story. In 1959, the New York Times reported that Pakistan had embarked upon a radical program of economic rehabilitation charted by the men behind West Germany's remarkable post-war recovery. Ludwig Erhardt, economics minister for West Germany and MPS member, visited Pakistan in late 1958, and his policy advice was adopted in toto by General Mohammad Ayub Khan after his seizure of power in a coup. The advice was to halt the country's industrialization campaign and to focus on agriculture to start an all-out export drive on food crops. In 1959, Egon Solman, another MPS member, referred in the leading American economics journal to Pakistan's thoroughgoing reappraisal of its development planning along neoliberal lines. The strategy was consistent with the development discourse in the MPS, which criticized a potential over-industrialization of the periphery and encouraged the global south to keep its place in the international division of labor through agricultural production. Part of Pakistan's reform was the signing of what became the template for all future bilateral investment treaties. Signed by the West German and Pakistani governments in November 1959, Erhard submitted the Treaty for the Promotion and Protection of Investments to the Bundestag in 1961. The treaty took language straight from the ICC Code and the Ops Shawcross Draft, including the provision on compensation in the alien's home currency and the expanded definition of nationals to include any other company or association with or without legal personality. Where the universal approach had failed, the particular approach succeeded, bringing the seemingly radical conditions of international investor protection into binding law. Hayek began one of his books by comparing the law to a knife. Just as a man setting out on a walking tour will take his pocket knife with him, not for a particular foreseen use, but in order to be equipped for various possible contingencies or to be able to cope with kinds of situations likely to occur, he wrote. So the rules of conduct developed by a group are not means for known particular purposes, but adaptations to kinds of situations which past experience has shown to recur in the kind of world we live in. Neoliberals took up the knife of the law in the years after 1945, relying on it to provide a framework for the market. They were compelled to do so for the same reason Hayek, over his lifetime, put increasing faith in the law 
The reckless exercise and geographical expansion of democracy was corroding the principles separating politics from economics. In the age of decolonization, neoliberals saw international organizations based on the one-nation-one-vote principle as the enemies of world economic order. They were unsuitable candidates for what Hayek called an international power with the authority to say no. The globalist Geneva of the 1930s was a lost Eden for neoliberals. In 1960, Halperin pined for the League, inspired by the philosophy of liberalism, which did all in its power to promote the revival of freer trade and payments and of stable currency relations between nations. The post-war era brought the United Nations, of which the opposite is largely true, an organization that has so far proved singularly ineffective in helping rebuild a workable international economy. In many ways, neoliberals were League of Nations lost causers, with the Genevan institution held up as the better version of international organization. Geneva School neoliberals railed against the UN, not because it was world government, but because it was the wrong kind of world government. It is an irony that this Edenic League, like their Edenic Habsburg Empire, was largely a fantasy, a wishful construct of their own theories. In fact, by 1945, the League had become a leading proponent for expansionary policy at a global level. One of the continuing questions regarding neoliberalism is whether it is a project to restore class power or a coherent ideology. We have seen that it was both. In the years after 1945, Neoliberals worked with and alongside the International Chamber of Commerce to defend the threatened privileges of a specific class. Their imagination, however, exceeded that of their partners. Their radicalism always bore the potential of taking on a life of its own. Even though they worked with organizations grounded in internationalism, the globalism of the neoliberals often tended toward a goal that their hosts and funders did not necessarily share. When, in the years after 1945, Neoliberals proposed a good ITO that would constrain national sovereignty and make investor rights stronger than civil rights, they were dismissed as dinosaurs or dreamers. Yet what was condemned by contemporaries in the 1950s as a fallacy of 19th centuryism, believing the clock could be turned back to an earlier era, has become part of 21st century reality. In the 1990s, the number of bilateral investment treaties based on the original one between West Germany and Pakistan, quintupled to nearly 2,000. These treaties and bodies would seek to enshrine what one scholar calls the constitutional protection of capitalism on the principle of human rights as business rights. Scholars see the 1970s as a time of the breakthrough of the human rights of capital. As we have heard here, that movement has an earlier history— Defending the rights of the investor was an important early fight for neoliberal intellectuals and one they engaged in with their partners from the 1920s of the ICC. Although their campaign was framed as one for the sanctity of property rights, it is more accurately a fight for the sanctity of capital mobility. They were fighting not for the right to own and stay, but for the right to sell and leave. In the aftermath of the Second World War, as international law was being rethought to accommodate the problem of the stateless and the refugee, international economic law was being formulated to protect the rights of what one contemporary called refugee money and the human right of capital flight. If, as historians argue, nobody believed that the human rights of the 1940s should be enforceable at the cost of state sovereignty, 
It is notable that many believe that the private rights of capital should be enforceable in exactly that way. Although the actual practice of international investment law has been far from seamless, its post-war origin story provides a pointed case of the political activism of neoliberals in their quest to encase the world economy.